If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. As you may already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine. And we're offering you the chance to try six issues of Britain's best-selling history magazine for just $9.99. That's a saving of 72% on the shop price. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. And if you're based in the US, you can subscribe for just $49.99 for 13 issues, saving 65%. To find out more and for all other countries, head to buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. Both these offers end on the 15th of May 2021. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From Weight Watchers to Rosemary Connolly's fitness empire, slimming clubs have been a staple of British culture for decades. But their history goes far beyond the best diets to try or exercise regimes to adopt. With female friendship, entrepreneurial opportunities and feminist fury all playing their part in the story. Our sub-editor, Rhiannon Davies, caught up with Katrina Mosley, who explored the history of slimming clubs in a feature for the May issue of BBC History magazine. I wanted to start off with a really back-to-basics question, which is, what is a slimming club? Yeah, okay. So... I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners will be kind of um, familiar with with slimming clubs in the 21st century because they are so um, ubiquitous nowadays. Um, 
And basically, you know, in many ways, the model hasn't actually changed that much since the late 60s and early 70s, which is the, the period that I'm interested in. These are um, essentially a commercialized form of weight loss, um, of group weight loss, where you um, pay a, a weekly attendance fee and a monthly membership fee to attend a slimming club, um, typically in, in, a, in a village hall or a school hall in your local area. And so you pay, you pay kind of a small fee um, to become a member and, and in return you get advice on weight loss. So you, you kind of attend once a week and you get perhaps a little talk um, and you, you go through a weekly weigh-in. So there's that embedded sense of sort of accountability for weight loss, um, which is a real, real key part of the kind of the motivational structure is to sort of go along every week and keep you on track on your diet. Um, and, and crucially, you have the support of other people who, who are going through the same thing as you, so who are trying to lose weight. And, and a very um, a very unique and, and, and particular um, uh, characteristic of the Slimming Club is that everyone who offers advice in those clubs um, has gone through the process themselves. So this is not just a case of, you know, bringing in a nutritionist or, or a medical professional who, who would maybe be seen to sort of patronisingly, you know, disseminate knowledge. This is, it's very important to slimming clubs that um, that the person leading the class uh, in Weight Watchers literature, they're called um, lecturers, that these are, are typically women who have um, gone through the process of losing weight and are able to then talk quite, you know, in quite um, evangelical terms about how that's um, kind of affected them and, and, and um, in the ideology of slimming clubs, how that's positively changed their lives. And where do these clubs originate? Because they're not an entirely British phenomenon, are they? Yeah, no, that's right. So the first um, sort of thing that we can recognisably call a slimming club uh, is an organisation called TOPS, which stands for Taking Off Pounds Sensibly. Um, and that's actually still in existence today, but it was founded all the way back in 1948 in um, Milwaukee by this housewife, Esther Mance was her name, who was actually pregnant with her fifth child at the time. And she found herself in a, in a kind of a little bit of a, a phase of life, a middle age phase of life, where she felt that she wanted to lose a couple of pounds. And she saw that kind of a lot of her, her girlfriends were in the same situation. They, they also had had, you know, perhaps a couple of children and they felt that they wanted to somehow sort of take back control of their bodies. And, and quite significantly, I think she was attending um, a childbirth group at the time. So this idea of group therapy was very much at the, at the forefront of her mind. Um, so that, that was the first kind of example of, of a slimming club. But crucially, that was a non-profit organisation. Um, and TOPS went on to expand um, really um, considerably through the 40s and 50s. It actually looks quite different to what we recognise as a slimming club today in that it, it was very light-hearted in its approach. Um, it would do things like crown a, a quote-unquote pig of the week and a, a queen of the week for weight loss, which, you know, to our 21st century um, sensibilities seems, you know, quite insensitive. But at the time, there was very much that kind of light, light-hearted attitude. Um, and on the flip side... Um, around 1960, you see the emergence of an organisation called Overeaters Anonymous, which is very much built around the, the kind of 12-step programme or inspired by the 12-step programme of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was founded in the US in the 30s. And, you know, that's a real um, 
opposite side of the coin, I think. That's that's taking seriously the idea that people can, um, you know, have really deep emotional um, relationships to food and eating. So, you know, famously in the case of, of Overeaters Anonymous, members would start by declaring that um, they've become powerless over food and their lives become uncontrollable. So that's kind of a, a, a model, again, a non-profit model, but one that's really basing itself around compo- compulsive um, overeating as opposed to sort of um, the, the light-hearted atmosphere of, of tops. And if we skip forward then to the 1960s, that's when we start to see the first example of a commercialized weight loss group. So um, a woman named Jean Nidich in um, New York, she was brought up in, in Brooklyn in a Jewish immigrant community in 20s and 30s. And she again found herself in this kind of middle phase of the female life course feeling that she wanted to lose a little bit of weight and feeling that her girlfriends felt the same way. And she was the first one to, um, you know, appreciate that that there could be an opportunity for profit here, that if you charged a small membership fee and a small weekly attendance fee, that this could be, you know, real big business. And of course, in some ways, the rest is history. You know, Weight Watchers continues to exist on a massive scale um, today. So those are the kind of American origins, really. And how does it come to Britain? It's Weight Watchers that first comes to Britain a couple of years later in the 1960s. And a woman named Bernice Weston, who is a, a, an American um, woman living in Britain by the 1960s, she, she trained up. She also actually grew up in a Jewish immigrant community in New York. And she trained in law. Then she married an English lawyer and moved over to the UK. And it was on a kind of um, return visit to America. She was visiting family in Florida she was slightly younger. She was in her, her mid to late 20s at the time, but she was feeling that she wanted to lose some weight. And her brother, who was a heart specialist in Florida, suggested that she attend this, this slimming club, which was there, had then spread from New York all over America to Florida. And, you know, she records this in her autobiography, which was published a couple of decades later, that she kind of fell in love with this model. She thought, you know, there's really something here. And I think that, you know, friends back home in England would, would you know, really take to this. And so she kind of effectively stays on in America, loses the weight herself, and then approaches um, Jean Nidetch's organisation to say, you know, I'd like to buy the rights to operate this in Britain, which she does. So she borrows, I think it's around $2,000 from her mother, so quite a significant sum of money at that time to um yeah to basically create a clone of the model and bring it back to the UK and she does that she brings it back to um kind of the southeast of England she's living in Kingston upon Thames and then she moves out to Windsor in 1967 and that's when the first ever uh, Weight Watchers UK meeting takes place in 1967. So delving into the economic opportunities that um swimming clubs offered a little bit more are they quite rare at the time in giving opportunities to women? Are they a new way for women to make money and have businesses of their own? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. And I think there are uh, two kind of sides to that, really. Uh, the, the history that I was interested in writing around student clubs is partly a history of female entrepreneurship. Um, so the women who founded these clubs. And it was partly delving into, you know, some of the experiences of women who lectured for these clubs at, at a local level. And if we just start thinking about those women at a local level, um, I think the answer is that, you know, this isn't really a story of huge economic empowerment for those women. Um, it, this is non-salaried employment, so they're effectively self-employed. Um, 
they've not got the kind of benefits that would come with a salary, so sickness, um, unemployment benefits, things like that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's as is often the case in the 1960s, this is women segregated into kind of low paid work effectively so what we might what we sometimes as historians call pin money you know money that would um allow women to buy certain um perhaps luxuries but it would not you know it would still be dependent on um a full-time a male wage so it's they could they couldn't really use this to become sort of self-sufficient in that sense but I do think the entrepreneurship angle to it is is more interesting. I mean, there's a really long history of female entrepreneurship that goes you know right back through the centuries, and it's mainly a history of of women kind of negotiating around existing economic constraints. One of the really interesting continuities I think is is women using the domestic space. So if you go back to the late nineteenth century, um, you know working women might, for example, convert um, a front room of their house into kind of a shop front. And they might then use that as the basis for a trade like um, millinery or uh, seamstressing. And that's a real continuity throughout the 20th century. And we see that happening in slimming clubs as well. So um, entrepreneurs like Rosemary Conley, who um, some of your listeners may have heard of, she's, you know, achieved quite a lot of success with with her slimming clubs. Her clubs originally began in, you know, in her lounge for the first six months. She was just inviting friends, neighbours, girlfriends around to her house to kind of, well, she called it slimming and good grooming at the time. So they would receive, you know, there'd be a weigh-in and they'd also receive advice on how to paint their nails or walk in heels, things like that. Um, so there's a, an interesting story there about women kind of really drawing on the resources available to them, despite those constraints in the formal labour market. and. Um, Another, I think, really interesting parallel there is with um, companies like Tupperware and Avon, which which also um, kind of blurred those boundaries between domesticity and the, the formal world of paid work. So Tupperware parties are, I think, really significant for the emergence of slimming clubs. Rosemary Conley was actually a Tupperware representative in the 60s prior to, to setting up her business. And again, these are companies that complement women's kind of um, idealised role in the home and that they, you know, Tupperware basically worked on the basis of you'd have a Tupperware representative in a local area and you'd have um, a hostess who would invite the Tupperware representative round and a load of friends would come round as well and this would be kind of an opportunity to um, display the products. They might they might have kind of refreshments. Um, and at the end of that evening or afternoon some of the members would hopefully want to buy the products. And so the, the Tupperware consultant would receive, you know, a sum, sum of money in, in commission. And the hostess would receive kind of gifts in kind, so gifts of Tupperware. And obviously the point would then be to kind of recruit the next Tupperware hostess um, for the next party. So really, there are lots of interesting models like that. And, and Avon's another one where businesses that are targeting women through these kind of direct sales methods are, are really blurring the boundaries between sort of um, sociability and social opportunities and kind of, you know, cold, hard sales. And I think slimming clubs do a similar thing. I think that's a form of, of female entrepreneurship that's based around, you know, softening the idea that this is actually a business and trying to, you know, say to women, this is a community of women. This is a social gathering. You're not just a diet statistic on a piece of paper. You're, you're, a, you're a member of the kind of family here. So some really interesting themes to go back to your kind of question about entrepreneurship. There are there are ways in which women are still 
very constrained in this period. Um, um, another example of that actually is the fact that the women who set up these businesses were often reliant on um, personal funds. So we saw that in the case of Bernice Weston having to kind of borrow money from her mother. I mean, not all women would have been able to do that. Or kind of networks assisted by male partners in order to, to found their businesses. So I think that there, there are some signs, some really interesting signs of um, progress, but we've got to also put this in the context of the 1960s and 70s, where women are still, you know, struggling to achieve equal pay in a lot of existing um, sectors. And looking at one of the biggest success stories, I would say it has to be Rosemary Conley, right? I mean, she's still so well known today. Could you tell us a little bit about her trajectory, her rise to fame and fortune? Yeah, yeah. I I find her case really, really fascinating. So she was um, she was born in the 1940s in Leicestershire. Um, she left school at the age of 15, went to secretarial college. So, you know, so far so normal for women of that generation. Married at the age of 21 and left home. But again, um, found herself a little bit like Bernice Weston in a kind of phase of life where she was feeling as though she wanted to lose um, some weight. And she kind of experimented going to different clubs that were available at that time. She went to Weight Watchers for a time. She went to a club called Silhouette Slimming for a time. But she really felt that those those clubs weren't working for her. And and what she felt that she wanted to do, her vision, um, as she called it at the time, slimming and good grooming, was to um, create a community of women who would who would help each other to lose weight, but but they would also encourage each other to kind of gain in confidence as she saw it. So this is where the advice on, you know, personal style and the application of makeup came in. So I interviewed her um, at length a couple of years back as part of my research. And um, it was really interesting to see how she built this business from, um, you know, really small beginnings in, in Leicestershire in the early 70s. Like I say, inviting these women around to her home, growing the business from her home, eventually transitioning to a village hall. And then, you know, expanding all over Leicestershire, really, with, with clubs in her name and actually in 1982, she ends up, she's approached by the uh, this company, the International Publishing Corporation, with an offer. Um, they would like to basically buy her whole franchise with her still at the helm. So she'd still be the face of the business. And so she sells that company in 1982 for £52,000, which if you think back to the beginnings in, in the early 70s, just in her lounge, you know, really, really considerable um, economic growth. I think that there's um, a slight caveat to that in that, you know, we often like to think of entrepreneurship as, as, as you know, real rags to riches phenomenon. I don't think that was necessarily the case with Rosemary Conley. I mean, her she, she was from a, a kind of uh, well-to-do family from Leicestershire. Her father um, owned a hosiery business. So hosiery was a really big industry in Leicester in, in the early 20th century. And, you know, I think it's significant that he wasn't just working on the factory floor. Um, you know, he owned he owned a business. So there, there are some signs, again, of kind of existing capital there, family connections, um, cultural capital, um, material um, means to, to kind of found a business. But, you know, that said, I still think that her success and growth is really notable. And I, I actually her career kind of falls into two phases. So she sells um, the business to the International Publishing Corporation in 1982. And then she has a kind of second um, 
renaissance, if you like, around the mid 80s, where she's still running her own slimming clubs on a very small scale. Um, but she actually develops um, gallstones and she goes to the doctors and, you know, complains about this. And the doctor puts her on a really low fat diet. And uh, in her narrative, the weight kind of absolutely just drops from her hips and her thighs, which I think some medical professionals might question that a little bit today, the idea of spot reduction. But nevertheless, this becomes, you know, the real mantra for her going forward. And she creates this book, um, The Hip and Thigh Diet, in 1988, which goes on to become an absolute um, bestseller. So there, there are kind of two phases to her career. And I think that's, you know, significant when we think about uh, women at the at the helm of of, of um, slimming club franchises yes they do often achieve a lot of success but sometimes um a lot of that is if success is from commercializing um, themselves their, their business in other ways so publishing through magazines book deals television deals these kind of things also kind of add up to a, to an overall picture of, of wealth and fame. So circling back to Weight Watchers, it's the late 60s, England, Bernice Weston is really excited to start opening her own branches. How does she start drawing people in? How, how does she drum up interest for this new business model? She, does, she uses some really interesting techniques, actually. So the before and after image is obviously kind of... Um, a metonym for weight loss culture now we, we kind of we associate the two very closely together and that's actually one of her main marketing techniques I mean thinking about the history of, of before and after images they have a really long history so already in the 19th century with the um you know the rise of photography print journalism you see before and after images used to market a whole range of products cosmetics soaps and you know, by the middle of the 20th century, these are really important ways of marketing weight loss. And um, Bernice Weston really taps into this. So she, for example, organises a fashion show at a department store called Bental Department Store in Kingston-upon-Thames, where her initial um, cohort of Weight Watchers, if you like, those who have lost weight in the first sort of six to eight weeks, they um, come along to this fashion show and they are the models. They're the slimmed down models. And she she arranges to have kind of like huge blow ups done of their before pictures, almost like cardboard cutouts, so that members of the public walking past doing their shopping are, are really kind of drawn in to, to find out what this is all about. So the before and after image is a, is a really key marketing drive, um, marketing technique. And she also encourages women to... Um, Women who want to be Weight Watchers lecturers, who, who might want to set up a branch in a nearby area, she encourages them to um, approach the local press with their before and after pictures and to kind of come up with a little story around that that would be of, of um, immediate interest as to how their life has changed now that they've lost weight. And so that becomes, you know, of course, the press really enjoy this. It's kind of a real human interest story. That becomes really the way of, of spreading the word and spreading this network across the United Kingdom, which she does really successfully. I mean, to think that in 1967, there's the one class of Weight Watchers um, in Datchet, and then by the mid-70s, there are 570 different branches. I think that's really quite significant for that time. Um, so yeah, that, so the before and after image is, is a, a real way of, of drumming up interest. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This idea that you have to become slim in order to start living your life and, you know, in order to gain new employment prospects, new romantic prospects, 
that's completely ridiculous to these movements. And, and their point is about saying, you know, let's start living now. You know, it's not us that needs to change, it's society that needs to change, it's society's expectations. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So a thread that runs throughout your feature is female friendship. And there are some really lovely stories that you draw on and accounts of people who go to Weight Watchers or swimming clubs and they view it as their night out or their time to spend with friends. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, I think this was the most um, surprising and interesting aspect of researching swimming clubs to me because, it, of course, it, it kind of cuts across the the feminist narrative that we have around the slimming industry as a whole, which is to say that this is an industry that lines the pockets of male businessmen, male magazine editors, that this completely works against um, the interests of women at its core. But actually, you know, if we go back and look at the lived experiences of women who attended these clubs in the 60s and 70s, there were really interesting um, themes at play. I mean, Quite often, these are women who've maybe had a couple of children, whose children are are grown up, are of school age. So, unlike a lot of um, the other, you know, forms of, of female associational activity in this period, things like uh, the National Childbirth Trust and um, um, antenatal classes, these aren't groups that position women as um, mothers and homemakers. They're groups that really take women out of the home and out of domestic life, and they give them you know, a small outlet in the week to be able to go and socialise with other women. And of course, the, uh, the, big, the big caveat to that is that this is all in the name of, of weight loss, which I think we'll probably come on to talk about the feminist reaction to this. But I do think that that's quite significant. And also, if we, if we put this in the context of, you know, 60s and 70s, certainly the 70s, rising rates of divorce in Britain, um, growing numbers of divorce petitions initiated by women, I think there is a real sense in this decade that women do start to want something more from their lives. You know, um, female education, we're seeing huge changes there in, in higher education opportunities for women. Um, secondary education has, of course, become the norm now. And I did, I kind of, yeah, I think that that's reflected in some of the testimony that I've come across. So I included in my article this little anecdote of someone 
um, I found this from, from a sociological study of, of women and food in the early 1980s, where this uh, sort of housewife talked about having attended a swimming club with her friend, and it was her it was her opportunity really to get out of the house, you know, to to just be with with her friends, and that afterwards she'd go after they'd been weighed in, they'd go to the fish and chip shop and perhaps the pub. And then they'd start the process of swimming all again for the week. So there are these interesting um, points at which, uh, you know, the voices of historical actors kind of um, poke through the historical record and really challenge our understandings of what the slimming industry is all about in this period. So something that really strikes me is that it's a very gendered space. It is very women only and they make a point of excluding men. Why did they do this? Why were they so determined to keep it the preserve of women? It's it's interesting. I think, you know, we often think about the, the history of homosociality, so sort of same-sex socialising within the context of uh, male drinking cultures. So, you know, the pub in the early 20th century being a place that really um, implicitly and explicitly excludes women. And I think the Slimming Club is a really nice example of the inversion of that. You know, it's one space where men, certainly in the late 60s, really aren't aren't welcome. They're not welcome to attend. And I mean, you could come up with a whole range of reasons for why that might be. Obviously, weight loss advice in this period is very gendered. It's assumed that women are the ones who will want to keep a trim waistline. And so the marketing of, of swimming clubs is very much geared towards women. You know, men aren't even in really in the picture for, for, for the women who found these clubs. And if we look at the example of um, Rosemary Conley, who's um, early slimming and grooming clubs in, in the 70s, she actually branches off and there are, there are two options for, for slimmers, slimming and good grooming clubs and slimming and exercise clubs, where women who, you know, felt that they were overweight would be going and, and that would be a safe space for them to exercise and of course in that period they'd be in kind of leotards tight-fitting clothing and this was one of her kind of thoughts when I asked her about this in an interview was that you know women wanted this to be a safe space they didn't want to feel like the male gaze was on them um they didn't want to feel vulnerable they wanted to just express themselves freely so I think that's another really interesting angle to it if we think about you know women wanting to protect these as, as sort of safe spaces to, to feel vulnerable as overweight women. I'm glad that you mentioned exercise classes because this is something else that I wanted to ask you about. Was this focus on female friendship, it wasn't just restricted to slimming clubs, was it? You have keep fit classes that are also all about emotional support and friendships. Yeah, and keep keep fit clubs are a really interesting example of this. So the the keep fit model is really um, pioneered by a woman named Eileen Fowler, who is this sort of um, exercise guru in the the fifties, and she appears on radio programs, TV programs, if you if you can afford a TV in that decade, um, with these sort of exercises to to slim your legs and keep supple and, and things like that. Again, very much geared towards women. And she starts to run, as well at a local level, these keep fit um, classes for women to attend, which she then incorporates, forms into a, an association, a national association in, in 1956. And one of the really nice um, records that I found of this was in the Wiltshire, um, Wiltshire History Archive. So they've got the whole records from 
1965 right through to about 2000 of the Swindon District branch of the Keep Fit Association. And it's it's so interesting to delve back into those records. They've got all the minutes recorded down and you can see, you know, these are women who are really taking this quite seriously. You know, um, Mrs. Palmer to bring to bring coffee and refreshments on this day, Mrs. Wilkinson to host the meeting, the AGM on this day, you know, really kind of um, assigning, assigning each other roles, so social secretary or club secretary. And, you know, they're very um, concerned about the idea that this should be a female-only space. I mean, in the case of the Swindon branch, they actually vote to rename the branch the Ladies Keep Fit Association um, in the mid-1960s when they're founded. And that name remains in place until... 1977 and even then they don't immediately admit men so a real sense that they um that they like the idea that this is a, a woman's a women's space and that husbands are are to be invited to certain um occasions social functions but not others and they're very um firm on the idea that children under 12 should not you know attend rallies and things so this is again a really interesting example of um you know, women stepping outside that role of, of wife and mother and finding some time for themselves um, to, you know, to meet together and undoubtedly to talk in amongst exercising. I mean, you know, what one thing that's often said about the, the latter part of the 20th century is that we have this shift towards a cult of the body and we all become, you know, obsessed with um, pursuing an individualised lifestyle and kind of, you know, toning our bodies and things. But actually, if you look at what people are saying in this period, I mean, there's there's a really nice example in um, the sociological study of women in Aberdeen in the late 70s, where um, one woman there talks about, she's sort of in her 40s and 50s. Um, she's interviewed about her kind of um, health beliefs and attitudes. And she talks about going to the Keep Fit Club, really just to get away from the telly and to sort of meet people. And she says, you know, um, sometimes if I'm too tired, I'll still go and I'll just, you know, I might not do the keep fit. I'll just sit and talk and have a gossip. So, you know, what looks like a real shift towards um, uh, body cultivation and, you know, obsessive um, preoccupation with the female body on the one hand can actually look quite different up close when we, you know, really try to uncover those those um, lived and social experiences. So we've talked a lot about the positives to do with slimming clubs, but then looking at the other side of the argument, particularly in the 70s, you have feminists who are not particularly convinced by slimming clubs. They're not a fan of them. Can you tell us why they felt that slimming clubs were sending out the wrong messages to women? I mean, probably the the clearest example of this, the most famous example, though it's not explicitly about slimming, is is when the you know women's liberation activists stormed the um, the Miss World competition at the Royal Albert Hall in 1970. So very famously, you know, they infiltrate dressed you know in you know pretty clothes as if they are um, audience members, and then halfway through this Miss World contest, you know, they completely disrupt the whole event. And, you know, obviously their idea there is that women should not be judged on the basis of, of their bodies, on the basis of their appearance. Um, but actually then throughout the 1970s, slimming, the dieting industry is not necessarily coming into a lot of the, of the women's liberation literature. But it, there's a real kind of gear change in 1978 when um, Susie Orbach, this British psychoanalyst, I'm sure many listeners are familiar with her, 
publishes this famous book, Fact is a Feminist Issue, which is, you know, really changes changes the, the field for a lot of people. And that in that book, she's um, concerned, as many feminists are in, in that decade, about the sexual objectification of the female body. But she's also concerned about, you know, the propensity for uh, women to pass um, ideals on unconsciously to their daughters. So, you know, the, the idea that, that mothers might obsess over their weight and might pass these same obsessions on to their daughters is a, is a real um, source of anxiety for educated feminists like, like Susie Albach. That's one side of it. And, and, and yeah, so in, in a sense, feminists in the 1970s are really quite damning of slimming clubs. They see them as these organisations that, and they're quite actually patronising in some of their literature of the idea um, that slimming clubs might be, you know, these consciousness raising groups. I'm using that word phrase kind of, um, you know, not in a very literal sense, not in a feminist consciousness raising sense, but, you know, that they might be these emotional networks for women. That's kind of slightly laughable to some, um, some circles of the women's liberation movement. And, you know, you can absolutely see why that might be the case. So for them, there's a, a much um, stronger ideological argument here, which, which, which is um, to say that, you know, this is all about the cult of the female body. This is all about the male gaze. And, you know, to look for positives in the slimming industry is absolutely to miss the point. And in the future, you say that in the 80s, the body positivity movement starts to make waves for the idea that um, any person's body is acceptable and fine whatever your size it doesn't matter how did slimming clubs and the dieting industry more generally respond to this growing trend uh, well I actually think that the you know the fat liberation movement starts to make um, waves in the UK in the 1980s but it has um, an earlier history in the US so in 1969 we see the emergence of in America the National Association to advance fat acceptance it's actually initially called something different. It's called the National Association to Aid Fat Americans. But they change their name slightly later on when they become more, more sort of politicised. And then also the Fat Underground, which is another organisation that's formed in, in 1973. And by the 1980s, those ideas, are, like I say, are starting to sort of trickle um, across to um, the UK. So Groups like the London Fat Women's Group are active by the late 1980s. And there are also examples of, you know, um, exercise classes that are designed for larger women to encourage them to, um, you know, really embrace their larger bodies. And I mean, I don't want to kind of generalise too much about that move. The, the kind of broad gist is obviously to say that, you know, um, that the, the ideology of slimming clubs is completely misplaced. This idea that you have to become slim in order to start living your life and, you know, in order to gain new employment prospects, new romantic prospects, that's completely ridiculous to these movements. And, and their point is about saying, you know, let's start living now. You know, it's not us that needs to change. It's society that needs to change and society's expectations around body weight and body size. So they do a lot of um, activities like, you know, letter writing to um, within the fashion industry and also in job discrimination, actually, around size. But, you know, like any movement, like the women's liberation movement, there are many different feminisms that make up feminism. And there are many different strands to, to the fat liberation movement. And, you know, on, on the one hand, you have um, members of this, this movement that are sort of saying, you know, we're about more than our bodies. We're all about, our, you know, we should be defined by our hobbies, by our interests, by our 
skills, our, our, our working lives, our relationships with other people. And you have a more radical side of that movement saying, well, that actually that doesn't go far enough because you're still, you know, in some ways erasing the fat body. You're still in some ways, you know, distracting from the idea. And you're still in, in some senses adding to the stigma by trying to, di- to distract from it. So that more radical side of the movement says, you know, fat people are desirable subjects. They are desiring subjects. We should be celebrating um, our bodies um, and not trying to, um, yeah, not trying to kind of distract from them. And I, I mean, I use that term fat people very deliberately because I think a big part of that movement, although it can sometimes seem, you know, really insensitive to say fat people, I think a big part of that movement is about saying, well, why should that be insensitive? Why should we stigmatize that? You know, so these are people who really do identify with that term fat and, and are trying to reclaim that and repurpose that, not as an insult but as a positive way of of being in the world and inhabiting space. So in the 90s and more recent decades, how does the focus of slimming clubs shift? Yeah, we see some really interesting shifts in the 1990s. And actually, most of the research that I've done on slimming clubs focuses on the late 60s, 70s and 80s. So I haven't gone into as much depth on the 90s. But we do see some very um, general shifts. Um, one of the biggest ones is that more men start attending slimming clubs. And that's part and parcel of a, a broader shift towards, um, well, the medicalization of obesity, which is a whole nother story, which is happening also in the late 20th, mid to late 20th century. So obesity goes from being kind of seen as this individual problem, um, talked about in medical circles in the 50s, um, to this society-wide problem in the 1990s where public health authorities in, in England are, you know, really drumming home the idea that this is um, a trend that is escalating. And, you know, public health becomes concerned with, um, with, with leading a healthy lifestyle. It's part of another shift that, that we see in the 20th century, which is, you know, the big shift from infectious disease to chronic disease. So, Increasingly in the second half of the 20th century, medical professionals are saying, well, you know, tuberculosis is a thing of the past, cholera is a thing of the past, but now we have these growing problems of heart disease, of hypertension, of diabetes, and what do we do about that? So you see this real turn within public health towards encouraging a quote-unquote healthy lifestyle. Um, So, you know, the anti-smoking campaign, which proves very successful, and with less success, uh, the healthy eating kind of campaign, um, which so so that's one big shift is that, you know, we've got this growing societal attention to health, which means that um, slimming clubs are able to shift their focus slightly. It's, it's largely a very gradual shift. You know, it's not something that they decide overnight, but you do see over time the the rhetoric becomes much less associated with clothing, fashion, appearance, these things that appealed to women in, in the late 60s were assumed to appeal, appeal to women. You see much more of a, a move to focusing on health. Health is seen as this kind of neutral territory that, you know, won't alienate men. And if anything, will, you know, encourage more men to attend. Whereas on the other hand, you know, if we skip back to, to Rosemary Conley's slimming and grooming clubs, you know, teaching women how to paint their nails that's that seen you know that's obviously very misplaced by the 1990s now that you've got lots more men attending so that's that's one really um big shift and I also think that that's you know that growing emphasis on health and that move away from focusing on on appearance is in part a way of 
accommodating those arguments made by women's liberation activists about the objectification of the body. You know, there's this growing sense towards the end of the 20th century that to slim just for the sake of fitting into a dress is not a healthy and and meaningful thing to do. And actually, I don't know if you want to talk about disordered eating, but, you know, that's one element of it as well, that there are some real kind of, um, there's growing awareness of disordered eating basically in the late 20th century. And, And I think there's this growing sense that actually slimming can do damage and that the only right way to slim is to slim when you're putting your health um, at the centre of your of your agenda. So there's this kind of big discursive shift, which obviously culminates now in what we've seen in recent years um, with Weight Watchers, you know, renaming itself wellness that works. So taking the, the whole idea of weight completely out of the equation. Of course, it's not taken out of the equation at all in practice, but certainly discursively or rhetorically, um, it's, it's now gone from their marketing slogan. So in your feature, you say that the history of slimming clubs is largely overlooked. What is one thing you would like our listeners to know about this history that you think should be more widely known? I think I'd answer that by saying that, you know, certainly what I found really um, gratifying in researching slimming clubs is is this realisation that spaces, um, activities that look really mundane, that don't seem to have... um, a very interesting story behind them, perhaps in the 21st century, can actually have a really, really rich um, and interesting history of, you know, contradictions, nuances. I mean, the very fact that we don't think about slimming clubs that much in the 21st century, I think is a huge sign of their success. They are just everywhere. They are ubiquitous. They've blended into the everyday to the point that we don't actually really give them much thought. And actually, when we do give them thought, you know, in cultural representations, they're often sites of or sources of humour. So if you think about, you know, Peter Kay's comedy routine on slimming clubs or um, Little Britain famously with Marjorie Dawes, the slimming club leader, these are often seen as really quite trivial places that, you know, offer trivial solutions to trivial problems. And I think that's partly because they have, they are spaces um, that have appealed mostly to women and that are, you know, a lot of the things that women do are often remaindered in our cultural imaginary there or our historical imaginary that you know they don't attract as much historical attention and you know we have seen a lot of pushback against that in recent decades we've now got histories of glamour we've got histories of gossip these really really rich and insightful histories but I suppose that's yeah that's the one thing that I've I've certainly taken for this research is this realization that if you look hard enough there are really really interesting histories to be found in the most unexpected places. That was Katrina Mosley. You can read her article on the history of slimming clubs in the May issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale until the 12th of May and also includes features on the Peasants' Revolt, Napoleon and Operation Barbarossa. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back on Friday with an episode on the Katyn Massacre of World War II. We'd love to know what you think about History Extra. So we're running a survey to ask you what you love about the podcast and what you think we could do better. It should only take five minutes to fill out and you'll be entered into a prize draw for the chance to win one of seven £100 Voucher Express gift cards. The prize draw is open to UK residents only and runs until Sunday the 16th of May. 
So to have your say, just head to bit.ly forward slash HEPodSurvey, where you can also find the full terms and conditions. That's bit.ly slash HEPodSurvey.